The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Marvelous. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho, the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The People's Podcast is here. The remedy for boredom has arrived. Let's go for a ride. Ask the girl what she wanted to be. She said, baby, can't you see? I want to be famous, star on the screen. But you can do something in between. Baby, you can drive my car. Baby, gonna be a star. Baby, you can drive my car. Baby, I love you. Jericho, Jerichoholics, how in the hell are you? After a couple weeks of non-stop wrestling, I'm turning on a dime. I'm giving you something a little different. Bigfoot Hunter Eric Altman is coming up on the show. A really fruit conversation about the existence of the human-like creature who lives in the forest, lives in the woods, lives in the snow, in the mountains. We'll go through all the evidence and case studies, what Eric thinks and why. We'll also get into the Mothman legend, the man-sized bird-like wing creature that was terrorizing West Virginia back in the 60s. So much to talk about with Eric Altman. I love this sort of stuff. I can't wait for you to hear the show, but I got to start by saying thank you to you for listening. Thanks for doing your Amazon shopping through my links at podcastone.com as well. It's the easiest way to support this show. Amazon is a proud sponsor of Talk is Jericho, and every time you shop at Amazon through my link, Amazon gives a small percentage of your purchase back to the show to help us cover production 
production costs. You don't have to buy anything special. It won't cost you anything extra. Buy whatever you were planning to buy and help the show out in the process. Just go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcast Free banner at the top of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. I've got Amazon links for the UK, Canada, and everybody's going to Amazon. Amazon USA. Bookmark it so you can get to those links in one easy click. All right. Very, very cool. Lots of stuff happening this week. Uh, first and foremost, if you haven't listened to the last couple of weeks of Talk is Jericho, I uh, kicked it off two weeks ago with the two-part uh, interview with Dave Batista. you got to check it out. So many great stories about Guardians of the Galaxy, etc. And then uh, also his time in the WWE, past, present, and future. The cage match where he was fined an astronomical amount of money. Uh, just just a really, really cool interview and followed up by the two-parter with Triple H, the biggest guest in, in uh, Talk is Jericho history. The ratings have gone through the roof. Everybody wants to hear what Triple H has to say, and this is not some kind of a work. This is a real, true, blue, actual uh, interview between two friends just discussing wrestling, discussing the company that we work in. It's a very, very uh, eye-opening, fun interview, and I think if you have not listened to it yet, it is worth your time to go and check it out. I think you will love it. I think it's going to be very, very cool. And one of the things that's really funny is I played last week the first interview from Triple H when he was, Sean Paul, yes, Gordon, Jean Paul will come and take the ladies. Jean Paul will come and take the championship. It was like so bad. So then it made me rem- remind me of my first WCW Nit- Nitro interview, my first kind of national interview. I had a match with Alex Wright. And it was my first, you know, live TV match where they give you seven minutes. And, of course, I have all of these ideas and thoughts and things that I want to do. And this high spot and that high spot. I remember Alex saying, like, you know, man, you're not going to get a chance to do all that stuff. And we were both baby faces. And the finish of the match, and this was in 1996, and this was NW already been there. The finish of the match is where uh, I, I, I push Alex off the top rope. He falls to the floor. And I waved the match off. I refused to take the victory that way. If I'm going to beat Alex Wright, I'm going to do it fair and square. And it's funny because the announcers just bury me. Like Bobby Heenan is like, take the victory. Take it. What are you doing, you dummy? Don't, don't, don't wave the match off. And, of course, Bischoff was trying to put me over as like this big honorable babyface. And that was just in the cusp of the era when uh, babyfaces were kind of turning into heels and heels were turning into babyfaces. Just see Stone Cold Steve Austin in the NWO for what I'm talking about. Those guys were basically heels in the NWO's case. They were total heels, but they were so cool they were babyfaces. So I was like this nameless face, this babyface that was, you know, not taking victories because I didn't want to, uh, to beat Alex Wright that way. And then after the match, they had uh, said, okay, you're going to have this match. You get seven minutes. At the end of it, Mean Gene's going to come over. And you're going to do an interview, talk about why you didn't want the match, but more importantly, talk about the NWO. And that was kind of how it was when you were there. Like everybody had to just talk about the NWO at all times. It didn't matter who you were, when you were on the card, what kind of match you were having. It was all boiling down to the NWO. That was like the moneymaker. And during the announce, uh, during the matches, the announcers would just be talking about the NWO and the NWO did this, the NWO did that, the NWO is coming up. And this was like during the match, you'd be having this wicked false finish or something, and they'd be talking about the NWO. And that was even on the pay per views when when they've already, you know, people are already locked in and watching. They'd still talk about the NWO during the match, which was uh, very frustrating for a young guy, a young wrestler. 
So I, I finished the match. People are kind of half booing. It was in Palmetto, Florida, in the Manatee Civic Center. I'll never forget that. And I go to the floor, and I was supposed to talk for a bit, and then me and Gene was spo- or then uh, Alex was supposed to talk for a bit, but we had run out of time. And typical Jericho, I just totally bogey Alex out of his mic time and uh, take over the interview, although I didn't take it over. We had just run out of time. And Alex gets ready to talk, and he's like, Ski! And Gene's like, all right, Alex, uh, go back to the dressing room, collect your thoughts, and we'll get, catch up to you later. So I thought it'd be fun to, uh, you know, we heard uh, Triple H's first national interview with a drunken Gordon Soley, and now we're going to hear Chris Jericho's first national interview. Uh, mean Gene was not drunk, at least as far as I know. So uh, here we go. The very first Chris Jericho national interview from, I believe, August or September of 1996, 18 years ago. Check it out. Chris Jericho, what you've just done here in front of a national television audience, I must say, your first appearance at World Championship Wrestling, and it was a breath of fresh air. Mean Gene, when I came to World Championship Wrestling, I came here to fight to the best of my ability and to accept a victory over this man like that. It's not the best of my ability. I have a lot of respect for Alex Wright, and I wasn't going to take him out like that. But there's somebody who might have taken a victory like that, someone I used to admire, and that would be Hulk Hogan and the rest of the NWO. And I tell you that me and Alex are going to fight with all our hearts for WCW. Thank you very much. Uh, We are out of time, Alex. Maybe you can just get back to the locker room and, and try to get your wits together. We've got four Nitro when we come back. Well, what do you think? Not too bad, right? Not too bad for first time. Uh, kind of a little bit indie-rific, but I think there at least there was a little bit of presence there. I remember some girl I knew uh, called me. There was no texting back then. People called me and said, it was so nice to hear somebody with some, something, a fresh perspective. And I was like, oh, yeah, right on, man, right on. And um, that basically set the tone for the first year and a half of my time in WCW. Just go out there and talk about the NWO. But, yeah, you know, I've come a long way. Here we are in 2014, 18 years later. Just had one of the best matches I've had. Uh, So much fun. The cage match on Raw on Monday night. And what a match it was. It was kind of the rubber match between me and Bray Wyatt. And the first thing is when I heard that we were having a cage match, I'm like, this is so cool. Cage matches are one of my favorite type of matches because it's all based on the drama, much like a ladder match of just crawling uh, to the door, the cage door. And also climbing. And you just go, you know, you take your time. There's so much drama involved. And it's so easy. All you got to do is just jump to the cage and crawl really fast. And people get into it right away. So we set up the match. Uh, We had two segments on Raw. Starting off the show in Baltimore, which is a great wrestling town. I love Baltimore. The crowd is always hot there. And anytime you start off a show, if I'm not in the main event of a show, I want to be in the opening match. And that's just smart veteran call because the crowd is always super pumped for the first match, especially if it's somebody that they know, somebody that they're familiar with, with the story of me and Wyatt. I mean, it's hard to believe that it's already been, you know, two and a half months since since I came back at the beginning of July and hard to believe that I'm almost finished. You know, we go back on tour with Fozzie on September 17th. So, um, you know, it's a little bit bittersweet because I'm having a great time this run. I really enjoyed it. I love working with Wyatt. The crowd has been... Kevin Dunn said to me, are you more over now than you've ever been? And I think the crowd is just so much more into me than they have been in a long time. Maybe it's because of respect level. Maybe it's because I'm still delivering. Uh, maybe it's because they just enjoy what I'm doing. I know I'm enjoying what I'm doing. 
And of course, the the, the cage match was was capped off with the uh, death defying dive from the from the top of the cage. Which, as soon as we found out that there was a cage match, I was like, oh, we we got to do that. But the thing was, originally Vince just wanted Bray versus Jericho and Bray to come down to the ring by himself. He didn't want the family to come down. I asked if I could have the family come down for one reason and one reason only. When I'm on top of the cage climbing over, why would I go and jump off the top into the ring when I can just climb over to safety? Well, the problem was that the Wyatts were down there like sharks in the water, like piranhas in a tank waiting for me. If you saw, as I climbed to the top of the cage, the Wyatts kind of surrounded the area where I was trying to go to. So if I go down there, they're going to stop me and they're going to beat me up. So I climbed back up to the top. I got the Wyatts on the outside. I got Bray Wyatt on the inside. And that's why I did the old shrug, like, what the hell? I got nothing to lose. I got nowhere to go. I'm just going to jump on this dude. And it was so cool. I mean, the jump was fine. And as you saw later on in the show, Seth Rollins did a dive from the top, and it was completely thrown away. They didn't even hardly catch it. There was no suspense to it. When I did it, uh, people saw it was coming. I try and climb down. There's the Wyatts. I climb back up on the top of the cage. I crouch. I slowly stand up. Then the people start to smell what's going to happen. They start looking around. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. I stand up to full height. The people look. People are standing. It was like you feel like a... You feel like a golden god on top of the cage because everybody is standing there with you. They know what's coming, but they can't believe you're actually going to do it. And off you go. Uh, you know, I gave the little shrug, kind of like, a, you know, what am I going to do type thing, and also kind of to show, like, here we go, baby. And I think it was one of the, my favorite moments that I've had in a long time. The dive itself was fine. I actually really hurt my toes on the moonsault right before it. I felt like I broke my damn toes on the moonsault. I happened to land, like, toes first, and that was what hurt. Dive was fine, you know, tweaked my knee in the storyline. All the people that actually believed that hurt my knee, you guys are, uh, you guys fell into the trap. I'm the master of puppets. Master of puppets and pulling the strings! And just worked to a great finish with both of us kind of battling out to the floor at the same time. That was Vince's idea. It's something that he said he'd never seen before in a cage match. He's right. Great drama. Great finish. Amazing crowd. Amazing high spots. Like I said, I, I, the last couple of weeks, I really have fallen back in love with the WWE ever since basically SummerSlam. It's just been one fun thing after another. And it's going to be a little bit sad to step back, but that's... Uh, you know, it's going to be fun to start up again with Fozzie. So. And the funny thing is I haven't done a dive off the top of the cage since 1993. We had this little show outside of Calgary in this rickety old cage. And I did it with uh, Biff Wellington probably in front of 150 people. So went from doing it in front of 150 people to doing it in front of 15,000 with another 4 million watching at home. So I'm, I'm picking my spot. So the next cage dive I do will be 21 years from now. So when I'm 64... I will uh, book myself a cage match and do a dive from the top. So there you go. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? I always love how Paul sang that, almost like he's laughing. When I'm 64. All right, we got lots of stuff exciting coming up this weekend, September 13th in Janesville, Wisconsin, just outside of Madison. Fozzie at the JJO Sonic Boom lineup. If you're in the area, go check it out. All that remains, Hatebreed, Nonpoint, Fozzie, Avatar, Starset, Devour the Day, Boba Flex, Day to Remember, so many big bands, Bring Me to the Horizon, 
huge, huge, huge festival, and we're very, very excited to be playing at that. That is on Saturday. Sunday, I will be in Boston for the live event. That'll be my last live event for a while. And Monday on the 15th, I'm going to be in Lafayette, Louisiana for Raw. That'll be my last Raw for a while. So if you're in the area, come check it out. I always laugh when people are like, oh, sure, Jericho, uh, he got hit. Uh, he hurt his knee, and that's how they're, they're writing him off. Well, I'm not writing off yet. I'm still uh, still kicking, still around, and still going to be in the WWE for another couple weeks or so. Fozzie hits the road. With Theory of a Dead Man, go to Fozzy Rock for all of the dates. We start September 17th in Tempe, Arizona at the Marquee. We've got five headlining shows. you got to come check those out. Abilene, Texas at the Lucky Mule with Avatar. That's on September 18th. September 25th in Beckley, West Virginia at Munchies with Three Pill Morning. Uh, September 28th at Parkersburg, West Virginia at the Sixpence, also with Three Pill Morning. October 1st, Fort Wayne, Indiana at Pierre's. Also with Three Pill Warning, and then the return to New York City, Fozzie returning to New York City, headlining the Gramercy Theater. You gotta come check it out. That is also with Three Pill Morning. Magus, I think, is on that show, a couple other bands. It's gonna be a very, very cool show. Come check it out. Don't miss us when we come to your town and play with Theory of a Dead Man, and especially on those headlining shows. We're going to be playing new songs. It's going to be a new show. It's going to be awesome. And speaking of new songs, earlier in the year when we did the Lights Go Out tour, we put out a uh, a CD single. And on that single, if you listen to it long enough, there's an unidentified hidden track called These Gallows. Now, a lot of people have been requesting to hear it. They haven't heard it unless you bought that uh, CD single. And there's only like a thousand printed. It was actually a B-side that we recorded on the Sin and Bones sessions. And it's never seen the light of day. Um, very few people have heard it if they bought that, that CD single. And I thought it'd be cool to play it now. So this is a B-side, a never-before-heard Fozzie song, heard for the first time ever here on Talk is Jericho. It's kind of a duet between Rich Ward and myself. It's called These Gallows, and we're going to check it out right now. Crank it up and let me know what you think.
Beast Gallows. Hit me up on the Twitter at Talkies Jericho at Fozzy Rock. Uh, come check us out. Go check out all the dates on Fozzy Rock. And you can also find all VIP information there and see all inside information on Tweet Secret. Go to the app and uh, get daily videos from me telling you about all the stuff that I got going on. All right, that's enough for the shilling for Jericho stuff. We got Bigfoot Hunter Eric Altman coming up. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You're listening to Talk is Jericho. On the line right now, he is the director of the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, one of the leading experts on the elusive phenomenon known as the Bigfoot Tribe. Eric Altman is here. How's it going, man? Hey, Chris. How you doing? I am doing great. I'm really glad uh, to be able to talk to you. Uh, a couple months ago, I had Jeff Belanger on to talk about ghosts. And I asked him, listen, do you know uh, anybody that knows about big Bigfoots, Big Feets? And he was like, you have to talk to Eric. He is the man of, about this subject. So I'm glad to have you on the show. Oh, it's an honor to be here with you. I'm a big fan, and thanks for asking me. Well, I mean, let's just jump right into this, Eric. Um, I, I mean, let's. How do you become a Bigfoot expert? How did you get involved in all of this? Well, the really, first of all, there really aren't any Bigfoot experts uh, until we have a body, until we have a specimen, live or dead, that we can study. Um, there's amateurs, enthusiasts, and there's some authorities on the subject, but there really aren't any experts. Okay, uh, I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert, but um, I've been looking into the subject now, uh, studying it and researching it and going out into the field investigating for close to uh, 34 years now. Uh, my interest in Bigfoot and the, the whole subject began at the age of 10. And back then when I was a young kid, I was a big fan of all things strange and unusual, uh, the paranormal, uh, horror movies, that sort of thing. And right. uh, I saw a movie called Legend of Boggy Creek. <laughs> I remember that movie. Yeah, that was kind of the catalyst that inspired me to really start to look into the phenomenon and see if there was really anything to it. Well, I mean, you mentioned uh, I kind of grew up the same way, is that I was really obsessed with all things kind of supernatural and fantastic. And I remember when I was a kid, there was uh, Legend of Boggy Creek. And then a few years later, there was one that came out called Night of the Demon, which was just a a real campy B-movie where the Bigfoot actually looked like it was wearing the fur that you would find uh, wrapped around your toilet seat. You know, like that stuff you buy like at Target or whatever. But the one film that I always read about and, of course, could never watch back in the day because there was no YouTube or any way to look it up on the Internet was the Roger Patterson film. You always heard the Roger Patterson film, the Roger Patterson film. And that was kind of like the biggest piece of evidence for Bigfoot uh, sightings in the late 60s and early 70s, correct? But, yeah, that's correct. And it still is today. Uh, it's considered... The, um, the golden chalice of Bigfoot research, if you will. Well, let's talk about that. What, what exactly? Roger Patterson was a guy who was just in the forest in California and, and filmed this Bigfoot that he actually almost like stops and looks at the camera? Yeah, this, the film was actually uh, shot on October 20th, 1967 by Roger Patterson, who was a, a rodeo rider. And he was from Yakima, Washington. Mm-hmm. And he had come down to Northern California multiple times 
uh, a big enthusiast of Bigfoot, always looking into the subject. And he was in that part of Northern California called Bluff Creek. He was down there that weekend to film a Bigfoot documentary. And he and his partner at that time, Bob Gimlin, were out purposefully looking for a Bigfoot creature. And uh, that day that they shot the creature, they were planning on packing up their camp and leaving and returning back to Washington State. And uh, they figured they'd make one more uh, trek around the area on their horses. And uh, lo and behold, they come around a fallen log on a creek bank, and there she was. Patty squatted down in the creek bank. The horses reared, startled Patty, who stood up, and as you see in the film, walked away. And she, you're right, she does kind of uh, pause for a second, look back over her shoulder, and continue to walk off into the forest. And for many Bigfoot researchers and enthusiasts, uh, that's the, the holy grail of Bigfoot research. Now, has that been uh, studied now in the modern day and age? Is it still considered to be legit? Well, there's been controversy surrounding that film now for about 47 years. Um, some people think it's legit, and there are others that say, no, it's, it's not a, a real creature, it's a man in a suit. Mm-hmm. And there have been extensive studies done by multiple special effects companies. Uh, there have been documentaries on television that take a real hard look at the creature or the person or whatever it is in the film, and they try to dissect it and you know, figure out if it is, in fact, a real creature. And they always have the pros and cons, you know, whether it is or not. Right. And I don't think they've come to a conclusion as to what exactly is in the film. So it still remains a mystery to this day. What do you think it is? I'm on the fence. Um, I really think it, I don't think it's a person in a suit. At least mm-hmm. it doesn't appear to be to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wasn't there, unfortunately, to, to see it for myself. And all I have to go by is a grainy film. So I don't know. Um, I'm on the fence about it. I would like to think that that's a real creature. I mean, there's some things in the film that really kind of make me lean towards it being a real creature. Of course, Patty having breasts, and you see them moving as as she or it is walking. And um, there's some other things that you can see muscle definition in the back as it Mm -hmm. walks. And there's some things that really make it jump out as being a real creature. But there's also some questions I have about the authenticity of it. Um, a, a gentleman by the name of Robert Hieronymus came out in the late 1990s and claimed that he was the man in the suit. And Robert is a very good friend of uh, Bob Gimlin, and um, you know, yeah, that's his claim. And unfortunately, he doesn't have anything to back it up at this point, but mm-hmm. there's still some controversy surrounding his claim and the film itself. Has there been other films or, or really well-taken pictures that are out there over the years? Well, as you know, Chris, uh, there are a lot of uh, videos on YouTube, probably hundreds, if not thousands, of videos of yeah. people claiming they've seen Bigfoot. And most of them I would rule out as being someone in a costume or someone uh, just running through the woods very quickly trying to make it appear that they're a Bigfoot. I don't put much credence into them simply because of uh, the advancement of technology, how people are able to create CGI and, and pr- create pretty decent-looking suits. However, there may be something out there that really is a Bigfoot, somebody accidentally captured on film. Uh, there are a couple films out there that uh, stand out above most, and one of them being the Paul Freeman footage. Mm-hmm. And that was taken in 1982 in Walla Walla, Washington, the Blue Ridge Mountains. And uh, Paul was a forestry employee. And uh, he had, on many occasions, gone out looking for Bigfoot and found tracks. And on that particular afternoon, he was out with his video camera, and he hears the noise in the pine trees shifts his attention and the video camera towards the pine trees, and this large hair-covered figure that looks like a giant ape walks from right of the screen, takes about four steps, and disappears into another grove of pine trees. Mm. Now, many people have looked at that film, and they believe that that also shows a Sasquatch in the film as well. 
However, it's uncertain. We're not able to go to that location and measure the trees and, right. and get a distance from where he was. So another inconclusive film, but it is a very interesting film nonetheless. Now, you mentioned Sasquatch. Is, that, is Sasquatch and a Bigfoot the same thing? Uh, it is. And the reason I mentioned Sasquatch, um, researchers such as myself prefer to call it Sasquatch because the term Bigfoot has become very commercialized. Right. Um, Bigfoot, what really, the term Bigfoot didn't come about until 1958. And uh, it was introduced to the public by a newspaper company, the Humboldt Times, out of Northern California. And a gentleman named Jerry Crew, uh, for several weekends back in that uh, summer and late, or late summer, early fall of uh, 1958, the, the construction crew that he was part of, they were clearing a logging road so they could go up and log this area in, in Bluff Creek, California. And on many weekends, um, they returned to the work site, and they would find these large, very large human-like footprints all around their heavy operating equipment, their bulldozers and cranes, and, and uh, they were puzzled. Now, some of the employees who worked there were Native American, and they were very familiar with what was leaving these tracks. Well, finally, Jerry decided to make a plaster casting of, of a couple of the tracks. He took them to the Humboldt Times newspaper, and October 6, 1958, the term Bigfoot was, was coined. Yeah, I, I guess because Sasquatch would be the proper, like you said, Native Native American, Native Canadian Indian term for, for, for the creature, right? Yes. Uh, the term Sasquatch was actually created by a, uh, an American, uh, J.W. Burns, in 1923. Uh, he was spending some time with the Chehalis Indian tribe in British Columbia, and they had told him legends and stories about um, them co they coexisting with another tribe of uh, wild Indians or wild men of the forest. And his interest began to really kind of develop over the, his time spent with the Chehalis Indians. They called it Saskahavis. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, John W. Burns, he changed it from Saskahavis to what we know now as Sasquatch. Yeah, it's interesting. I know, um, especially when you're talking about the Pacific Northwest, that's, I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid with my grandparents used to live in British Columbia. And I actually remember the second wrestling match I ever had was in a place called Agassiz, British Columbia, or, or one of the first three or four I had. And there was actually a couple signs in that area that said uh, Bigfoot Crossing or Sasquatch Crossing. Like they put up road signs like, to just let you know like you're in Sasquatch area. So is that kind of the, the, the place where the, most of the sightings are, is kind of in the Pacific Northwest area? Well, that's what uh, was thought for a long, long time. And, and that's what's been portrayed on television, on a lot of the documentaries. And it, it's probably most accepted in the Pacific Northwest. However, um, looking at sightings over the decades, it, it really turns out that the majority of sightings seem to be occurring on the East Coast, hmm. especially along the Appalachian Mountain train. Um, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, has a high number of sightings, as does uh, Ohio and Maryland, West Virginia and Virginia, all the way down to Florida, where they have the skunk ape down there. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of sightings over here. And I think the reason for that is the higher number of population over here on the East Coast as compared to mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest, where it's much more forested and, and uh, you know, not as populated. But uh, the Pacific Northwest, especially northern Canada, Oregon, Washington, up into British Columbia, has a very, very high number of sightings going dating back to well before um, our, our modern times, probably back in the 1700s, 1800s. Now, you've done quite a few investigations of your own. What exactly does that entail? What, what are you investigating? Sightings? 
Yeah, well, what we try to do, the, the group that I run, the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, and myself in particular, what I want to try to do is find out if the person who's claiming they saw a Bigfoot or encountered a Bigfoot really did. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I try, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm an amateur. Um, I, I've had a lot of experience out in the field, but I'm an amateur. So I don't have a police background or a criminology background or even a scientific background. So I got out there and try to uh, investigate these cases as scientifically as I'm capable of. And what I mean by that is I want to try to treat these cases um, you know, with very close uh, attention to detail and finding out from the eyewitness uh, their story, having them take me to the location where they had the encounter or the sighting, mm-hmm. and look for signs of physical evidence. And what I mean by physical evidence is uh, footprints, of course. Uh, that's a definite determination if something large has been in the area. Um, we're also looking for possible hair being left on a tree or a, a bush or branches or even thicket. So we want to look for that. And we're also looking for other uh, physical evidence such as scat or perhaps uh, a large scat? trail where a large animal walked through the bushes. What's scat? The droppings? Droppings, yes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Have you found those things? Um, I can't say that what we've discovered is Bigfoot droppings. Um, we've been out in the woods and we've seen pretty big droppings and we kind of just scratch our head and go, hmm, I wonder. Mm-hmm. But um, we've never really had any tested. I mean, I don't think there's anybody out there who's an expert on Bigfoot poop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, what kind of evidence have you found? Over the years, um, we've discovered uh, strands of hair on several broken pine trees. Um, we've casted uh, about five or six footprints that we believe to be left by a, a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. Um, the, the tracks that are discovered are very rare, uh, as opposed to the number of sightings, mm-hmm. especially here on the East Coast, because the soil composition is much, much different than it is in the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast. They get a high number of, uh, a higher percentage of rainfall than we do over here in the East. So our soil over here is much uh, harder, compact. We're dealing with bituminous coal, um, shale, clay, and, of course, a lot of leaf clutter. While on the Pacific Northwest, they get a lot of rain, so their soil is softer, muddier, and easier to detect and find tracks. Mm-hmm. What we find are large human-shaped impressions. Sometimes they have toes in them, and they do look like big footprints. Other times they look like just an oblong um, foot-shaped impression in the ground. So we kind of have to assume or guess that they're Bigfoot tracks. And they can't be, it's not comparable to like a moose or a bear-type uh, tracks? Well, the, the moose tracks are, are definitely different from a Bigfoot track. They're much, much shorter in length, a little wider, actually. Um, and bear tracks, um, unless a bear steps in its front paw from its rear paw and creates the image of a, a Bigfoot track, usually you'll find one solitary track and the toes on the front are rounded, where a Bigfoot track is either flat across the top or at an angle, like our human feet are. Mm-hmm. So tell us about some of the sightings that you've heard about. Has there been like... I mean, obviously, I saw something in the trees, but has there been anybody that's actually had some kind of like a almost a one-on-one encounter with, with, with these type of creatures? Oh, there have been many people over the years that claim that they've had face-to-face encounters with these creatures, and some actually pretty credible eyewitnesses. Hmm. Um, I've spoken with uh, police officers. I've spoken with folks, uh, attorneys, um, doctors, uh, blue-collar and white-collar workers, people from a variety of backgrounds. And... Most of them that do tell us you know, what they experienced don't want their name used. Uh, they're right. afraid of being ridiculed or possibly losing their job or you know, just being made fun of, so they don't want any publicity. 
Um, they're very reluctant to tell anybody what they saw. And the, usually the only reason they do is because they see we take the subject pretty seriously. So right. um, we get a lot of uh, people that tell different encounters, but the, the most incredible to me and the most fascinating to me are these face-to-face encounters where um, you know, somebody can give us great detail about what the face looks like, um, a flat nose, a brow ridge, uh, wide-set eyes, or the color of the eyes. Some people claim they see large, uh, very human-looking teeth in the mouth of these things. Um, so a, a close encounter like that is, is great for us as researchers because it helps give us a lot of information and a lot of detail that we can add to our database so when we're out looking for it, we can rule out somebody seeing a bear versus seeing a Bigfoot, mm-hmm. a bear with the snout and you know, the, the protruding ears from it. Most people say when they see a Bigfoot, they don't see ears. Usually they're covered with hair. So the face-to-face encounters are really cool, um, especially when they come from a credible eyewitness such as a, a state constable sure. or a police officer. Has there been any violent uh, encounters, violent attacks even? Actually, yeah, there's been a few, and and you have to remember we're dealing with uh, possibly an animal here, and we all know animals can become defensive and territorial, so you have to treat them like an animal, and you have to respect them. And over the years, there have been cases of people who've who've gone out on a hike in the woods and disappeared, or hunters or campers who've gone missing. We can't, you know, attribute that to a Bigfoot, but we can't rule that possibility out either. Hmm. But there are a few cases that were documented um, in the 1850s, uh, our former president, Teddy Roosevelt, wrote in his book, The Wilderness Hunter, about a trapper by the name of Bauman. And Bauman went into uh, southern Idaho with his par- uh, trapper partner, and they went there specifically to trap animals and uh, to try to make some money off of this, you know, the fur trading industry. Mm-hmm. And while they were up in that, uh, the southern Idaho mountains, they encountered, a, as they called it then, a wild man. And this wild man would harass them at their camp. It would circle the the campsite in the the tree line. Um, It came right to the lean-to where they were sleeping one night, and they got so afraid they could see its hairy outline in the darkness, they shot at it. So as I mentioned, like any animal, if you kind of poke it and prod it, it's going to become a little angry. Well, that's what this one apparently did according to the story. Uh, After all these encounters that Bauman and his trapping partner had with this creature, they decided they, were, they had enough and they were going to leave. So the one morning they were packing up their camp, Bauman went out to collect all their traps while his partner stayed back at the camp to pack everything up to leave. And Bauman returned that early afternoon to find his camping partner killed by some large animal with huge fang marks on the side of his neck and these large human-like imp- uh, footprints or impressions all around the body. Wow. So it's a a very interesting tale, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt believed it enough to write about it in his book. And Teddy Roosevelt knew these guys? or Well, uh, according to the story, uh, Bauman was a trapper that Teddy had met, met and uh, Bauman told his story from the 1850s later in his life uh, when he was in his like 80s or 90s. He relayed the story to Teddy Roosevelt. Now, Teddy, as you know, is a big game hunter. He loved the outdoors, and he loved hearing stories like this. And he believed Bauman's story. He thought you know, Bauman really wasn't looking for any kind of attention. And back then, there really wasn't the, the term Bigfoot, of course, and, right. and it wasn't well known. So he found it a fascinating story, and he included it in his book. Well, and that's when the president of the United States, because, you know, presidents never lie. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, with all the different investigations that you've done, have you ever had any encounters yourself? 
I, I've had a couple of strange experiences in the forest. Now, I'll tell you right out front, I've never seen a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Of all my years in the woods and, and all my years doing this, I've never seen a Bigfoot. I can't say, you know, I saw a Bigfoot walk across the road, and it was definitely a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen some things moving through the forest very quickly, a dark brown form of something that I look at, and I say, well, maybe that was a bear, or maybe that was a deer or another hunter. Just a quick glimpse of something dark brown moving. So I can't say for sure what that was. Mm-hmm. But I've had encounters where I've had rocks thrown at me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've been in a, an isolated area very, very late in the night or early in the morning, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, um, I've heard very ungodly screams and howls that I just can't identify. Wow. Uh, they, they actually make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. They're so loud and powerful. Um, I found, of course, as I mentioned, these large footprint impressions in the ground and uh, large impressions that may have been left by a Bigfoot. Um, probably the most unique experience I had happened in October of 2008 when I was investigating in southeastern Ohio where uh, I had something thrown at me and a gentleman who was with me. Um, it landed on the ground in front of us. We heard it hit, and, of course, he panicked. Uh, ran back to the vehicle and was yelling at me to come back to the vehicle with him, which I eventually did. And as we were leaving, my high beams were on. We were backing out of the area we were at. My high beams went across the front of this bush, and it appeared that some kind of dark form or figure rose up from behind the bush. Now, I only saw it for about two or three seconds, and I stopped the car and, and thought to myself, what in the blankety blank is that? Yeah. And I pulled the car back in with the high beams on the bush, and there was nothing there. But what's interesting about it, and I, I just ruled it off that night as just seeing a shadow or you know, a trick of the eyes. Yeah. I went back the next morning and looked behind that bush, and all the grass behind that bush was all trampled down like something large was walking around back there. Wow. So don't know what it was, but uh, it was definitely something out of the ordinary. And how do you mean when you said you, you, you were getting rocks thrown at you? Like, is that something a Bigfoot would do or a Sasquatch would do is like throw rocks at, at people? Well, that's what Bigfoot researchers believe and assume. Uh, I know primates do it. The chimpanzees will throw sticks and rocks at, uh, let's say, uh, a tiger or a big cat that's coming to uh, attack them or any kind of predator that they don't want there. Mm. That's how they defend themselves. They'll throw rocks as like an intimidation type of thing. And Bigfoot researchers also believe that because it's happened to multiple researchers over the years where we'll be out in the forest, you know, miles away from civilization, and especially, like my case, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, um, when all of a sudden rocks start coming through the trees hmm. and landing on the ground, you know, feet in front of you. And you're kind of like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's nobody else out here. And when you go to look for anybody else, there's nobody there. So you're standing, standing thinking to yourself, where the heck did this rock come from? <laughs> and, of course, we, we research it to see if primates do that kind of thing, and, and sure enough, they do. So researchers assume, and even I assume, that it was possibly a Bigfoot throwing rocks at me. Didn't see the creature do it, but that, you know, that's a good possibility that it did. And is that the same thing with the, you mentioned blood-curdling screams? Is that kind of a, like a chimpanzee type of a thing? Like, is that the sounds they make? It's a variety of descriptions, Chris. Mm-hmm. Anywhere from uh, high-pitched, shrill screams. Some have described it as a woman being raped or murdered in the forest. Wow. Um, others have described it as a, an elephant-sounding roar, a combination of an elephant and a tiger or a lion roaring. Some people have said it's been so loud that it actually vibrates their chest, and they can mm-hmm. feel it in their chest and their, you know, their face as, as this thing roars. Uh, while other people say they've heard strange whistling sounds in the forest, 
uh, monkey chatter, primate chatter, um, and even a whooping like primate sound that people have heard and actually recorded. And there's uh, recordings of these on the Internet that anyone can look up and listen to. Wow. And you've heard these. You've heard yeah. those screams. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. I have the director of the Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society, Eric Altman, with me on the line. So many interesting things coming up. Uh, What I mean, just to cut right to the chase, what do you think... The Bigfoot Sasquatch species is. What are these creatures? That's a great question, Chris, and I wish I had an answer for you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't. Um, I started this, as I said many years ago, thinking that a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot creature was nothing more than a descendant of a, an extinct primate known as the Gigantopithecus blackie. Mm-hmm. And the Gigantopithecus blackie was one of the world's largest known primates to exist about 100,000 years ago. And um, this thing lived in in, uh, Euro-Asia, and they found mandible teeth and jaws in the caves in Asia. And, um, you know, that's how they determined this creature actually existed. Now, putting this creature um, together based on these teeth and jaws they had found they came up with a, an ape-like creature or primate that stood about 12 feet in height, and this is all based on the size of the jaws and the teeth, mm. um, covered in from head to toe. And um, this, this creature, they, they think, the ape, they think, walked on two legs. So it does kind of fall into the category of what a Bigfoot is or what people claim. And this was, over in, this was over in Europe? Yes, in, in the, the uh, caves of uh, Asia, China, gotcha. Nepal. And uh, some of the scientists who are looking into this theorize and speculate that it crossed over the, uh, the straits from uh, Russia over into Alaska and then down into Canada and, and North America. Now, I, I first thought that that's what this thing was. That's what we were dealing with was uh, a relative or a descendant of the Gigantopithecus blackie. Mm-hmm. However, over the years, and, and studying this more and more and listening to eyewitness testimony, people are describing seeing more of a human-like creature in the woods, a very large or giant human-like covered with hair. And also looking into the Native American tales and their lore, they describe on many occasions of coexisting or encountering these human-like, wild human-like beings, mm-hmm. very large. Some of them even called them uh, wild tribes of Indians. But I've gathered more and more information where um, people are describing more of a human-looking creature than an ape-looking creature. Um, and then, of course, you have to throw in the, um, unfortunately, to me, I, I don't know if I agree with it or not, but the paranormal side of things. There are mm-hmm. a lot of people that kind of um, sway the, the direction of this being, uh, this creature coming from UFOs or huh. being an interdimensional creature. And they theorize that because 
after 50 plus years of uh, people such as myself researching this, and even scientists looking into this, we have no physical specimen. We don't have a live or dead carcass. Right. Um, so without the lack of a physical specimen, of course, people try to theorize, well, why is that? Is it because maybe this animal disappears into a, a vortex or a wormhole or another dimension? Um, and, and they throw a lot of these theories out there, and some of them might be plausible. We're just starting to learn about uh, other dimensions and other, uh, other realities. But um, I don't necessarily subscribe to that because I've seen no proof that that is the case. But there's a variety of, of what people think a Bigfoot is. And unfortunately, at this point, uh, I'm not sure because we don't have one. We don't have one to study. So I keep an open mind, and I, I look at all possibilities. I'll even research the paranormal if that, the occasion arises. But uh, I'm leaning more of it towards being a uh, maybe a, uh, a shoot-off of uh, one of our ancestors, kind of uh, like a, a relic hominid. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at this point, I honestly don't know. Well, I mean, you just hit on something that, that's kind of been my attitude is keeping an open mind, having that faith. It's like if you, if, you know, if you, to think that we're the only creatures in the universe and there's no extraterrestrial beings or with the size of the bodies of water that we live in, that there's nothing in, in the water or talking about the forests in the Pacific Northwest or mentioned, you know, around uh, on the East Coast, too, that there's there's hundreds of thousands of miles of just forest upon forest upon forest. There could be things in there that we haven't discovered. And that's why, like you said, having an open mind is kind of the best way to uh, to approach that. Now, do you think that whatever these things are, uh, are reproductive? Do you believe that they, they have baby Bigfoots? Oh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a reason I do, because a, um, the sightings have gone on for hundreds of years, so there can't be a four or five hundred year old Bigfoot running around out there. <laughs> right? Yeah. If he is, he need a walker and maybe some depends. <laughs> but, old foot. Uh, yeah, old foot is what we would call them. Mm-hmm. But um, I think they do reproduce, and I think the population of them is very small um, in, in terms of numbers. I can't guess, but I think it's a small population and nonetheless a breeding population. People report seeing multiple creatures on occasion. Uh, and that, what I mean by that is a, a large creature, a medium-sized creature, and then a small creature, a family. Uh, an infant size, a family, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I've gotten many reports from all around the country where people make that claim. They, they said, it wasn't just one I saw. I saw one, and then it was followed by a smaller one, and then even a smaller, which I think might have been a baby or a, a juvenile. Hmm. And uh, those reports do pop up. So common sense would tell you if this thing's been around for hundreds of years, there would have to be a breeding population, although be it small, for these things to, to survive as long as they have. Yeah, and to be seen as much as they have. You know, one of the big kind of uh, fad shows right now, kind of a, a hit, and there's uh, more than one of them, is the Finding Bigfoot series of mm-hmm. shows. Do you, I mean, it seems when we watch that, I mean, it's, you know, I was watching it with my son the other day, and it's like every episode ends with like, oh my gosh, there's some movement in the forest, and then it turns <laughs> out to be like a raccoon or something. Do you find a show like Finding Bigfoot is good for your cause, or does it kind of like just, is it kind of just uh, like, you know, a candy and just kind of fluff? I look at it two ways. One, it's great for the research that I'm doing because it gets the subject out there to the public eye, and it isn't as taboo as it once was. Mm. Um, Now people aren't looked at as crazy if they have a Bigfoot encounter or a sighting. So that's great, and it really gets it out to the mainstream media, and they're less leery to uh, report on it than they were before. 
it's almost become accepted, like it's a pop culture icon thing. Yeah, right. So that, that's the good side of it. The bad side of it is, and I'm good friends with Bobo and Cliff from the show. I have been for many years, but it, it's entertainment, and it's not really what we do as, as field researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not out there, and we hear something, oh, what was that? You know, <laughs> we run off into the darkness chasing it, or we don't whoop <laughs> right. like they do. I mean, some, of the, some researchers do, but you know, we're not there to entertain anybody. And to be honest with you, Bigfoot research can be very, very boring. I'm sure. We sit in the woods for hours and, and nothing happens, night after night after night, week after week, month after month, and, and nothing happens. But then there's that one just random chance we're out there, and boom, you get something exciting like a rock thrown at you, or you hear a scream <laughs> or, yeah. or something to that effect. But uh, it doesn't portray what Bigfoot research truly is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's entertainment, and it's, it's not meant for enthusiasts or fans or even researchers of Bigfoot. It's for the general public kind of to make them aware of, of the subject is there. There's this team of four people who go out there and investigate these cases. Because I'll, I'll tell you what, Chris, if I were able to do what they do on the show and go to each location have Bigfoot experiences, I'd have so much proof right now that we would know for sure if this thing was real. I'm sure, too, that you go to the grocery store or something or someone asks you what you do and you say you work for the Bigfoot Society. They go, are you on Finding Bigfoot? Are you on that show? I've been asked. <laughs> it's like that's now. If you're not on Finding Bigfoot, then you must not be a very good Bigfoot uh, researcher. <laughs> is it? Is it interesting? Uh, is it? I mean, when you go and, and do tell people kind of what you do or, or that you're in all this stuff, do people kind of look at you a little bit strangely? Is it hard to to uh, kind of get that across that I'm not crazy? This is something real. Uh, it used to be like that, mm-hmm. and and even my family um, kind of thought I was a little off for looking into this, because as I told you earlier, I've been looking into this since uh, I was 10 years old. Yeah. And um, I've gotten some strange looks, and my wife and I first got married. I, I waited till after I was married to tell her what I do as a hobby. And, <laughs> you know, didn't want to risk that. But um, I, I did get that kind of um, treatment. You know, people thought I was a little off or a little weird because I did this. Now it's completely acceptable, where... I mean, I, I've, I've written about in books and magazine articles. I've, I've appeared on numerous radio shows and TV shows. And, and to me, that's all great. But now when somebody sees it, they're like, oh, you do the Bigfoot stuff. I remember seeing you in this documentary or reading about you in this book. That's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's, as I said, it's like a pop culture thing now where it's, it's accepted. And it's the cool thing to be a Bigfoot researcher, even to the point, and I laugh about this, uh, when Facebook came out, and other people in the public who weren't researchers or weren't doing what I'm doing found out there were people out there doing the research. They wanted to join it. They mm-hmm. wanted to become researchers. And now Finding Bigfoot comes out four years ago, and it's, it's a craze. Everybody is out in the woods beating on trees and <laughs> screaming. And it's, it's like you can't swing a dead cat without hitting, right. hitting a Bigfoot enthusiast. You're like, I told you. Uh-huh. <laughs> you. You mentioned all the different shows you've been on. You've been on quite a few documentaries. I was just looking at some of them is from American Sasquatch Hunters, Bigfoot in America, Mountain Devil, The Search for Frank Peterson. Tell us about that. Is, is Frank a guy that's disappeared from a, from a possible Bigfoot? What that, is, that movie is about is uh, it's a case that we received from Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, that occurred back in the 1970s, where a hunter and his hunting partner were staying at a cabin in a remote forest in central Pennsylvania. And while they were there hunting, they had encounters with what they claim was a Bigfoot creature. It would harass them. It would come around the cabin, beat on the cabin walls, um, stalk them through the forest, scream and yell at them. And at one point, it actually came almost up to the front front of the cabin where they shot and killed it. Hmm. 
Um, now, this gentleman, who, who, his real name isn't Frank Peterson, of course, that's done for the movie, but this gentleman on his deathbed confessed to a, a very good friend of his who was a police officer that this occurred. And that they shot a Bigfoot, shot a, a Sasquatch? That's what he claimed. Wow. He shot a Bigfoot, and when they went to, they first thought maybe it was a bear approaching the cabin, and they shot and killed it. When they went to look at it, they realized that it wasn't a bear. It was almost human-like, so they buried it on the property where the cabin was. Wow. He confessed this on his deathbed to the uh, friend of his who, who was a police officer and to several family members, and we got uh, wind of the report. And several of the researchers of my group tried to make contact with these uh, people so they could talk with them and find out what the case was about, what really happened. Well, unfortunately, we were never granted an interview to say whether or not the case was real. So the director of the movie, Ryan Cavallini, decided to use that case as the basis for the, the movie, the fictional part of the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what the fictional part of the story is, is this gentleman, Frank Peterson, and his encounters with Bigfoot. And his uh, supposed shooting and killing of a Bigfoot. And the search for Frank Peterson is uh, basically like a gentleman who was there. He experienced it, but he kind of doesn't want to go on on public television or in the spotlight. So we're looking for this witness to to bring forward to get the case out there. To talk about that. Right. Now, the documentary part of it um, follows uh, Bigfoot researchers or Sasquatch researchers here in Pennsylvania, including myself and several members of my group and other independent researchers who do this on their own, you know, their own uh, volition. Mm-hmm. So it's a documentary and fictional movie all kind of rolled into one. Okay, and then you're also uh, in the upcoming Modern Monsters documentary. What kind of monsters do you talk about? In that one, that's mainly about Bigfoot. Right. And um, it, it's kind of like a pop culture look at Bigfoot, a documentary based on, you know, what researchers do how the media has um, taken a look at the subject, how they've treated it, how in some cases they, they use it for uh, marketing like they do with the Jack Links mm-hmm. um, and, and Pizza Hut when they had their Bigfoot pizzas. Oh, right, yeah. Right. There's a variety of different um, things they look at in, in this documentary where they show that um, there are researchers out there doing the field work, and, and they're very dedicated and very serious about what we do, but there's also a side of it where – uh, media, uh, businesses, big businesses take advantage of it and capitalize off of the uh, the popularity of it. Mm-hmm. So when they call it modern monster, that's a look at the creature now in modern times. Do you uh, investigate other types of, of you know supernatural type creatures? Yeah, I, I kind of I look into everything. Um, I look into what we call cryptids yeah. or uh, the, the field of cryptozoology. And um, I've investigated cases and claims of people encountering other things other than Bigfoot. Um, Bigfoot is my main forte. That's mm-hmm. something I've really invested my time and, and uh, effort yeah, in and, and education in. But I've looked into such creatures as the Mothman from Point Pleasant, West Virginia, to see if there's any validity to that story. And that, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Mothman story. That in itself is a fascinating case um, that, that happened in 1966 and 1967 and a little uh, river town on the Ohio River called Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Tell us um, about I've it. Looked... Oh, sure. Um, that began in November of 1966, where uh, there were uh, five gentlemen who were digging a grave, and they had heard some rustling in the brush, and when their attention turned towards the brush, they saw a winged entity or a human-looking figure with wings fly straight up in the air and fly over them 
and disappear out of sight. And that was probably the first documented case of the Mothman. The Mothman began to terrorize and uh, appear in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, all around the town, and especially a location outside of town called the TNT area, hmm. which used to be a facility owned by the federal government for them to create TNT and, and bombs and explosives for the military. Mm -hmm. And they housed a lot of this chemicals and, and a lot of this material on this property. And uh, in 1966 and 67, of course, it was shut down. It was nothing left but old buildings and remnants of the old uh, factories. But kids would go out there to make out and uh, to drink and party and have fun. And two couples went out there um, in November of 1966 to just drive around the old TNT area when they encountered this similar object that was encountered a couple of days prior by the, the gravediggers. Hmm. Uh, they claimed this thing was a large, gray-colored entity, uh, had an enormous wingspan, had very, very dark, glowing red eyes. Wow. And when they first saw it, it kind of scurried across the road in front of their car, and it stepped into the doorway of one of these old uh, abandoned factory buildings, and they watched it disappear. Well, they kind of freaked out when they saw this thing and decided to head back to town. And when they did, this thing flew after them. And they were driving as fast as 100 miles an hour trying to get away from this thing. Wow. And kept up with them. And this thing is big, like five feet tall sort of thing? Yes. Uh, people described it as standing six foot tall. Wow. And said it, uh, almost resembling a human with these very, very large bat-like wings. Uh, a gray leathery type of skin um, and these very dark red glowing eyes that people constantly talk about. It was always, that was one feature of the creature that always stood out with these glowing red eyes. But wow. what, what, makes the, what makes the Mothman case so fascinating wasn't the hundred people or a hundred cases or reports of people seeing this thing over that, uh, that year, but the other things, the other phenomena that was involved with what was going on in Point Pleasant. There were literally hundreds of UFO sightings going on at the time, People were seeing them more so than the Mothman. Uh, there was paranormal activity reported in the town in people's homes, poltergeist activity, strange sounds and, and noises coming over radios and televisions, and people having a, a lot of electronic interference with their phones. Uh, mm -hmm. These reports of these men in black that showed up in the town of Point Pleasant that were trying to uh, intimidate the witnesses not to talk about their Mothman encounters. And they described those men in black as uh, men with like an olive-colored skin, really no uh, distinctive characteristics, kind of like a bland, uh, maybe uh, not an Asian face, but more of a, uh, an oriental type wow. of face. Um, very strange-looking almond eyes, um, olive skin. They wore white dress shirts with black coats, uh, suit coats, black pants, black fedora hats. And they would go around the town to witnesses' homes and try to uh, dissuade them from sharing their, their Bigfoot encounter, or excuse me, their Mothman encounters. They would tell them, you didn't see anything, you don't know anything, this thing doesn't exist. And they, they tried to use that intimidation factor on the huh. people. And uh, all this happened from that one period, of the one-year time frame from November of 1966 to December of 1967 when the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant collapsed into the Ohio River, killing 46 people. Hmm. And after the bridge fell, the Mothman sighting stopped. And a lot of people uh, attribute the bridge falling, the bridge collapse, killing all those people as uh, to the Mothman phenomenon. They blamed it on the Mothman. What do you mean, like the Mothman caused the bridge to collapse? 
Yeah, there were people that were saying and reporting that they saw the Mothman or a Mothman-like figure flying around the bridge and even on the bridge just days prior to the bridge collapsing. And they, they think or they believe, and, and the town is divided when you talk to them about it, but there are people that still believe that the Mothman was responsible for the bridge collapsing or perhaps was a messenger or like a harbinger of doom. Uh, mm-hmm. trying to forewarn people that the, a huge tragedy was about to occur. And uh, there's still people in, Moth, in uh, Point Pleasant today that believe the Mothman was a, uh, I guess you call him a prophet or a, mm-hmm. kind of a, a, for, a foreboding warning per, uh, right. creature, you know, trying to uh, tell people there's a tragedy coming. Uh, that's a fascinating story that uh, I've, I've kind of looked into myself. I've been to Point Pleasant a, a few times and, and uh, to their festival and been out to the old TNT area where some of the buildings still stand. And I'll tell you, Chris, going out to the TNT area and knowing the history, that is one of the creepiest places I've ever been. Well, I can imagine. There was actually a movie, too, The Mothman Prophecies, I remember, with I think Richard Gere was in it. Yep. But, I yeah. mean, yeah, you uh, are spending time in the TNT area. You're spending time in the uh, you know, the wilds of the of the forests looking for, for Bigfoot. Do you, are you, do you have any um, expeditions upcoming? Uh, we do try to, to get out in the woods as, as much as we can. Uh, I'm going to be heading out in the woods tomorrow to do some hiking in south-central Pennsylvania in an area that's had a lot of sightings over the years, just to get out and hike and explore, see if I might be able to come up with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, in our group, we go out quite a bit. We try to get out as much as we possibly can. Unfortunately, the, the big drawback to being a Bigfoot researcher, um, this isn't my full-time profession, and mm-hmm. unfortunately there aren't really anybody out there there isn't anybody yeah. out there that makes money off of this. There's just no funding yeah. for it. Unless you catch one, you won't yeah. be making money <laughs> off it, right? Yeah, yeah, you might. You might. But uh, this is a hobby for a lot of us. You know, mm-hmm. This is a, a se- well, I call it a second job because I work a lot of on, uh, spend a lot of my time on it, and I work a lot on the subject. Um, but I, I don't get paid to do it. A lot of us that do this don't get paid to do it. So we go out on our own dime and our own free time and, and try to look into it. And being that we have to have full-time jobs, that and families and other priorities, this kind of gets put to the back burner once in a while. And you do it when you can, when time permits. But we do get out there. Uh, we do expeditions. Um, sometimes they're a week long. Sometimes they're a weekend, you know, when we can only do a weekend. Uh, we've been called weekend warriors by some. <laughs> um, but we, we do get out there quite a bit. And uh, I've been, look at, like I told you, I've been investigating cases now in the field and doing active field research for about 17 years now. And uh, I've traveled all over the country. I've spent some time in the wilds of uh, a variety of states from mm-hmm. Texas to the Pacific Northwest. Like we talked about uh, California, Oregon, Washington, right here on the East Coast and, and Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Uh, I've traveled around quite a bit. And uh, I, I don't know. If, I can't honestly tell you, Chris, if Bigfoot is real or not. Mm-hmm. But one thing I can tell you with certainty is the phenomenon itself is real. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learned over the years that there is really is something to it. Um, People are seeing something, they're finding footprints, uh, they're having experiences and encounters, and this isn't just something that started you know, five, ten years ago. This has been going on for hundreds of years. Right. So I'm convinced without a doubt that the phenomenon itself is real, and it continues to feed itself with all these different discoveries and different uh, mm-hmm. things and occurrences that happen. I'm hoping one day that I, I'll be able to, to send you a note saying, hey, Chris, it, it is real. <laughs> we have the physical proof, finally. And um, I can tell everybody I'm not crazy. Well, the bottom line is that we both agree there is something out there that is uh, different from the norm. There's no doubt about that. 
We've got Eric Altman. Thank you so much for being on the show. You can listen to Eric on Beyond the Edge Radio, Sunday nights, 8 to 10 Eastern, on the Para X Radio Network. And go to ericaltman.net for all information on all of his uh, expeditions, past, present, and hopefully future. Thanks, man. It's been awesome talking to you. Such So many, uh, so many loose ends that we need to uh, figure out what's going on out there. Most definitely, Chris. And thanks for having me on. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you. And uh, hopefully you learned a little bit about Bigfoot tonight. We sure did. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Hey, thanks to Eric Altman and thanks to all the big feet out there. Uh, We're going to find you someday. What do you think? Real or myth? That's for you to decide. Take a chance. Pick your side. Thanks to Eric for helping us figure that out. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to all of you who picked up the new Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War? It debuted at number 54 on the charts. How fruit is that? Uh, remember, we're going to be hitting the road with Theory of a Dead Man starting September 17th. Headlining gigs September 18th in Abilene. September 25th in Beckley, West Virginia. September 28th in Parkersburg, West Virginia. October 1st in Fort Wayne, Indiana. October 5th returning to New York City at the Gramercy Theater. And of course, you can find all those dates on Fozzie. Rock.com. And also, you know I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you guys checking out this show, checking out Fozzie, checking me out in the WWE. And also thanks to the Sexy Beast sponsors who help us pay for the production costs of doing two shows for you. If you want to help support this show, listen, the easiest way to do that is to do your online shopping through my Amazon links. Very easy to find. Just go to podcastone.com, click on the Keep Our Podcasts Free banner at the top of the page, then click on Talk is Jericho and you see all three of my Amazon links. Amazon UK, Amazon USA and Amazon Canada. Hey, every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so we can keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. No hidden fees, no hidden charges. You're just getting your shopping done and you're helping me out in the process. I want to thank you for listening. I want you to stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs. But until next week and in the meantime and in between time, that's another exciting edition of Talk is Jericho. We'll see you on Friday with my conversation with the cast of E! Network's Total Divas, WWE Divas, Brie Bella, Eva Marie, and Cameron, Ariane. All these beautiful, beautiful girls. Great stories to tell this Friday on Talk to Jericho. We'll see you then in a big, yeah, boy! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.